What is this? For the masses. Welcome to the For the Masses podcast. My name is John Barrett, your host, and I'm super excited for episode four. It seems like I'm excited for every episode, but like, why wouldn't we be? We're showing progress. The audio quality is getting better. We're speaking better and our guests are getting better. And it's up and it's stuck. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite word. But, you know, I'm just super excited with the overall like feedback you all have been giving me on the podcast, like showing so much love. Please remember to leave a review and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, okay? But before we get into the next episode, I want to give some shout outs to my boy, Jamie Kane over at Liberty Uninterrupted. He's been instrumental in getting me interested in podcasting. Again, his show is called Liberty Uninterrupted, an amazing produced show that he speaks well, he articulates well, and he educates well. Okay, so go listen to that. And then shout out to Chris Carter at the Just Chris podcast. This guy has been insanely helpful with getting the Ford of My Masters podcast up and running from an audio perspective and just like us bouncing ideas off of each other. I'm a supporter on his podcast. So I'm just super grateful for you, uh, Chris Carter. Now, the next admin task we have to take care of, I have a Discord group for just like-minded individuals. We'll be talking finance, spirituality, all these like positive things for everyone to stay plugged in. So again, it's on Discord at underscore for the masses. That's also our at on Instagram, underscore for the masses podcast. Go and um, follow us on there and we'll be posting snippets from all the different episodes there. Okay. And the same for Facebook. We have a Facebook page at for the masses podcast. Now, enough with the talking. Let's get into the episode. Welcome to For the Masses Podcast. This is Jonathan Barrett, the host, and I'm super excited for our guest that we're having today, Stacey King. Stacey King resides in Charleston, South Carolina. He is the training manager for PM ProLearn. He has over 26 years in the project management industry. He's a retired first sergeant in the Marine Corps. And a fun fact, he writes plays and screenplays. Mr. Stacey, how are you doing today? I'm Friday. I had an awesome day, awesome week of training, so I'm super stoked. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm a benefit of that awesome training that you gave us. So, Mr. Stacey, so with that being said, where are you from? How was your upbringing and what brought you to project management? I was born in uh, Thomaston, Georgia, but I was raised in uh, Buffalo, New York. So you could say, how was my upbringing? I guess you could say I probably fit many, many stereotypes. Born in uh, upstate New York, single parent, kind of raised in a myriad of we call it financial situations from uh, not so much money to lower middle class. But uh, I survived all that. So my upbringing was kind of found early on in school, identified around the age of seven as young, black, and gifted. So it's one of the government programs they were running back in the early 70s where they tested elementary schools, found you, identified you, and then classified you. And from that moment forward, I think I've been uh, tracked by one system or another within the public education system in New York State. I ended up going to a, an honor school called City Honors in Buffalo, New York, one of the first of its kind, still one of the preeminent high schools, probably in uh, at least in the Northeast of America. Been around for almost 30 years now. But I left there, joined the Marine Corps. Rest, as they say, is kind of history. So and that's kind of how I had my introduction into project management. Just I was just always curious initially about continuous improvement, how to be better than my contemporaries at pretty much everything. And so I didn't know. At that point, it was called continuous improvement, but that kind of lit the fire for, you know, wanting to be in this field. 
where you could get tasked with missions with very little uh, information about them, very little oversight, very little direction, and uh, you found a way to make it happen. And from that day forward, you know, I've always been tasked with those difficult missions where there wasn't a lot of information known, but I guess through my nature, I could figure a way. And if I learned to thrive, and that's kind of how I entered into the project management arena. Yeah, that's great. So, so Mr. Stacy, with that being said, so being young, black, and gifted, how do you think that bred you for excellence? And did that sway you for going to the military, for that wanting to be continually improving? Well, it kind of really begs the question, what do they consider everyone else who they don't categorize as young, black, and gifted? Yeah. And then you ask the secondary question, you never heard them say that about any other ethnicity. So I always thought it was just an interesting paradigm that I've never heard any other ethnicity labeled or identified as being young, whatever the ethnicity gifted. So that really never did for me other than made me question why did that kind of program ever exist in the first place? And uh, because I ended up leaving my neighborhood school and going to this school. So I always thought that the program kind of robbed those neighborhood schools out of all their, you know, intellectual talent and put them in a school that kind of give, you know, benefited that program, but it kind of robbed those neighborhoods out of some of the smartest children. So I think that experience kind of turned me away from school, to be honest. And that's kind of how I ended up in the Marine Corps, because I was really the first of my kind to lead that kind of school and not go directly into a collegiate program. In fact, all my um, counselors were shocked that I I, opt, you know, I opted out of college and opted to go you know, directly into the Marine Corps as an enlisted person. Yeah, that's, that's definitely interesting. So like you being in that type of environment kind of like shunned you away from wanting to do higher education. So you went to the Marine Corps. And do, do you feel like the environment you was around also put you like into the Marine Corps, you would say? M- more so from the perspective of like the continuum improvement thing? Yeah, I think just the environment of feeling pretty much like an experiment made me really turn away from education. Even though I knew I was, you know, extremely gifted, yeah. I just didn't like the I didn't like the experience of being one of a few in a program in a school full of mostly Caucasian children. So I just didn't like that experience. And so I opted to go somewhere where I felt like I could be around more people, you know, that looked like me. Yeah doing something that I want to do. You know? So I met a recruiter, watched the video, saw some people jumping out of planes and <laughs> doing things. And then uh, that kind of looked more exciting than going to another school and uh, falling in line. That's kind of how I ended up in the Marine Corps. I definitely get that. So day one, you're in the Marine Corps. You know, you know you come from this extremely like gifted environment. Do you think your, your IQ or whatever they called it at the time, do you think that like led you to success in the Marine Corps? I think my intelligence allowed me to survive a lot of things that a lot of my contemporaries did not survive. So I I guess you could say I kind of could have went two different directions. I could have went down a path of of being a troublemaker because leaving an environment of, you know, extreme discipline in terms of what the schooling I was was in and then being thrust into a military environment where – you would think there's a lot of discipline, but there's also a lot of free time. We have a lot of free time, and you're with a, b- a bunch of young people who have a lot of free time. I kind of, I guess you could say it's kind of like you could kind of go a little wild. Yeah. And uh, 
But I think my intelligence allowed me to not go so far to the left that I ended up like a lot of my friends in my youth in the military who, who watched out of the program. So I think that's what my intelligence did for me. It kind of saved me from uh, going too far to the extreme because I was in an environment where it was really the first time I had freedom to do things without oversight. I definitely understand that. So do you, do you, did you have an aha moment that really was like, all right, I need to tighten up. You know, I need to take this military uh, thing serious, you know, and continue to progress. Was there an aha moment for you? Yeah, I got married and I had a child. That was my aha moment. Wow. I was looking. I was looking at something that was looking back at me that uh, needed me to uh, to grow up. So, so would you say like that was your why from that point on, and then from there it was just like straight selling as it relates to progression. I think it uh, made me work a lot harder than I probably ever worked in my life. Just to take my family from where I grew up, you know, taken from that level of, I guess you could say, um, that experience of uh, being, you know, lower class or lower middle class. And take them to a, another level. So I think that's was my primary driver was I wanted my children to have a life that was different from mine, more stable, where they could experience things that I, I didn't experience as a child. Definitely. And and how did you sustain that like work ethic, that wanting to do better? Just like that kid looking at you every day, you're just like, I gotta keep on keep on doing this. I gotta keep progressing. Gotta keep on giving them the things that I I didn't have or might have not had. That was pretty much the, the driver, you know. It's, yeah. it's you just want to leave a legacy for your children. You want to leave them with, you know, their hero being their father, not their hero having to be someone they watch on TV or in a movie or some entertainer. Just a regular person who was able to, you know, navigate some some things that maybe would have made other young boys statistics, you know, and just show them that, you know, you can go anywhere as long as you are willing to work hard and you are you believe in yourself. No, absolutely. And that and that driver, that driving factor is, is like, I think is super important when you're talking about high performance and exceptionalism. So would you say you were a high performer in the military? I would say I became a high performer after I had children. Okay. Yeah. So I would say, yeah, that did light a fire underneath me. Oh, that, that's awesome. And then so eventually you phase out of the military. But before you phase out, what would you say like the biggest project you worked on while in the military? Wow, I had some, some really big projects. So I got to work with, uh, I think going to Radio Battalion out in Hawaii was kind of really turned me on to like the next level of project management because I got to work with a lot of technology refresh projects. I got to work with a lot of equipment that was really, really top secret, like NSA type equipment. And I got to learn more about, you know, how those things are created, developed and designed and how they're phased in and how older equipment is phased out. So I think going to a unit like a radio battalion, which has that kind of access to equipment and with federal agencies kind of lit a fire uh, for my next leap in project management. Yeah, that's awesome. So so that was your biggest project in the military. You phase out of the military, then you go straight into corporate America? Well, ultimately, I would say that was my biggest, like the jump off. I think my biggest project was I ended up going to the war in 2003 out of Hawaii. Wow. And we ended up going to a unit and attaching to that unit like two weeks before the war kicked off. And we went straight from Hawaii without having any field time, any training, any preparation for the war. And so we ended up in Kuwait two weeks prior to the H hour, and they don't even know we're coming. They don't know how to handle our equipment because it's so top secret. 
And so the project I had to do within two weeks was basically stand up an entire like logistics train that would be able to support my equipment, get it back to Hawaii when it was broken or damaged, and again, get new assets shipped from Hawaii into a combat zone. So we were able to, I was able to design, you know, a program or a process that became a project that was used later on by every unit that deployed from our, our command into the theater of operation. So that's probably the thing that I'm most proud of, you know, that we were able to, I was able to, you know, under that kind of stress, and under that kind of timeline, think of something with no prior knowledge and just make something out of nothing and then make that become a reality. Yeah, that's awesome. And so my, my question with that is, do you feel like your previous assignments and projects before that point, like, got you there and was like you're able to handle it? Yeah, I think uh, being a drill instructor, kind of operating in that kind of space, I think uh, being a maintenance manager in a infantry unit and going on back to back, you know, new deployments or Westpacs kind of got me in that space where I could think independently and think on my feet and uh, support commanders at, at multiple layers of command. I think I was prepared for it. I, I agree. I agree. I think I think things like that are a combination of everything that happened to us prior to be able to handle things like that, you know, and um, and winners win at the end of the day, you know. So that's awesome. So then you, you leave the military, you go into corporate America. What was the first like role you took on in corporate America? So my first role was, uh, or first job was with Otis Elevator Company. I was running elevator mechanics out of uh, San Diego, California. That was my first job post-retirement. And, and how was that? So were you like just like manager or like project manager or, or how was that? It was an interesting role. It's called a service manager because you're managing, I was managing 20 mechanics who, and I had about 2,000 elevators in the city of San Diego with about a 400-mile geographical area in managing them. I was also the first black service manager in the history of that company and in that city. So that was unique. And dealing with a union environment was also a unique undertaking. So I did it for nine months. It was interesting. But I learned something from that, that, you know, when you come out and you make your transition just to diligence and really make the best decision for you and don't jump on the first opportunity because they're going to pursue you very hard because you come out of the military and you kind of can check all their boxes for a recruiter. Right. You know, you're clean. You got good credit. You got no drugs. You got no legal issues. So you're when it comes to retention or, or attracting talent, we are we're like a goldmine for recruiters. Absolutely. But uh, so I learned. You know, do your due diligence and make sure that what you're doing is a fit for you. And that wasn't a fit for me. So I ended up leaving there after about 10 months. And I did, I guess you call it a little globe trotting. I, I went on a, this myriad of interviews with about six different corporations. And uh, I really took my time the second time around to make sure I was in a position that I wanted to be in. And that's uh, when I took my first project management role out in corporate America with a company called CGI Federal. So that's where I ended up in Charleston working at the Space and Warfare Command. That's awesome. So so when you were at CGI uh, Federal, would you say that you immediately started to excel or classify as a high performer there? Yeah, so I was uh, on a great path from the time I got there. And uh, I got promoted each year I was there for those three year, three and a half years I was there. So, yeah, your talent will take you where it's supposed to take you to a certain extent. Absolutely. So, Mr. Stacy, what do you classify as a high performer and exceptional? What is exceptionalism to you? Well, I'm going to say there are really three different categories. 
So there's the high performer that can really excel on the field, like a Michael Jordan. Then there's the high performer that can excel behind the field. We'll say like uh, Bill Belichick of coaches in terms of developing talent. But there is a rare individual who is a high performer in both spaces in terms of they can perform on the field and they can develop people behind, you know, off the field. And uh, so I consider that to be the epitome of high performance, that individual who's a mover and a shaker and an operator, as well as a developer of talent. That's kind of where I say that I exist. That's awesome. So how did you get those skills? Like, where are the qualities of someone who's a mover and shaker that can also, like, you know, quarterback these assets? When it comes from the ability to teach and it comes from the ability to to want to make the investment in another person, most high performers that can really perform well, like a Michael Jordan, can't coach because they don't have the patience to teach. So I think it comes from having the desire to help people and having the patience to work with someone who may initially not have all the intangibles that you had as a performer, but through your development, you can get them to a high performing state, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, definitely. So when you have when you take someone who might not have the Michael Jordan qualities or characteristics, how do you get this, this person without the intangibles to become a high performer? Well, you hone in what they do well. So I've always been a huge believer that everyone, I believe, was born with some type of genius talent. So my job as a developer of talent is to figure out what is that person does at a very high level and then put them in a position where they can maximize that particular skill. So I think that's kind of where I see it. Very rarely are you going to find that person, we'll call them like a five-tool athlete who can run, catch, pitch, uh, steal bases, and throw someone out from the outfield. Very rarely do you find that type of individual. But you typically find an individual with one or two really outstanding skills. And I found that in the American business or in corporate America, that's good enough because most people that I've found in business in corporate America and in these corporations, the workers, they just want to, most people just do the bare enough to get along. Yeah. Most people, most people are not trying to come and excel. Most people, we call it self-actualization. Most people, their version of being self-actualized is not being like their parents were 30 to 40 years ago, meaning they want to sell out for the organization. This is just a different times, different generation. And I kind of liken it to, I think, children like my children's age, children in their 30s and, and below, I think they got to see something in 2008 that kind of woke them up to the reality of what corporate America can be like when they saw you know, a lot of their parents when the 2008 downturn hit, get, you know, really get kind of shafted by these companies. And I think that kind of left an impression on people who are, I'll say, 35 and, and younger. I think they saw something that kind of woke them up to a reality that they saw something in corporate America that their parents didn't really see until it was too late. Like there's a there's a bottom line that that these corporations have, and there's really no loyalty from the company or the corporation to the worker any longer. I absolutely agree with that. You know, I I'm 27 years old. I have friends who worked with three, four companies. You know, since graduating college and five years ago. So I, I 100% agree with that. So do you think that actualization in 2008? gave, you know, the the young, the younger, you know, and people in corporate America, like a certain like drive 
or something to do more than well, their predecessors? Well, what I think it gave them was their self-actualization is not the company. Their self-actualization is what can they do with the money that they make outside the company that really brings them joy. I think that's yeah. kind of how the younger generation really looks at work. It's not the end all be all. It doesn't define them. I, I absolutely agree. And so so with that being said, like so these these new people in corporate America, they they have other things they like to do outside of work. So do you think as a as a person who's trying to quarterback these people into getting you know, work done or be high performers, just find out what they do, what they like to do, you know, and kind of give them that motivation to, you know, do those things and having that work-life balance. Absolutely. So really tying into what is it they do well. And I still think most people, regardless of, of their personal belief system, most people, when they are in the presence of exceptional leadership, even that can alter the way that they perceive or believe what is real in the workplace, and you still can create these high-performing teams of individuals who will still put the team first, more so than they'll put the organization first. And I think that's, that was kind of an eye-opener for me, is that you still can you know, galvanize young people to, to really still strive for excellence in, in the form of the team. No, definitely. And, and, and I think that comes from influence. You know, and you talked a lot about this as well. So with that being said, you really believe that a high performers are created. They're not born. I believe high performers who exist at the, you know, the tier where I said they have the ability to coach and perform. Right. Those individuals are born. So that's that's an that's a skill that you're born with, the ability to be empathetic, the ability to also be able to perform at a high level. So you're intellectually intelligent, you're intelligent, but you're your person or your spirit or your whatever drives you internally other than your brain power that connects you with other human beings and makes you want to see others develop at a high level and reach their potential. That's something that you're born with. I don't think that's something that's developed in you. Wow. So the one intangible would be their temperament, your temperament um, and how you how you deal with things as a as a coach. And as a player, that's that's the intangible for high performers. Any other qualities you see in high performers that, like, if anyone's listening to this podcast, that they would want to, they would want to, like, start working on to become a high performer? Curiosity. Curiosity about learning. You always want to learn more. You, you just, you're just thirsty for knowledge. And most high performers love to watch other high performers perform. So, so much by watching individuals work. Like I will go anywhere and watch another individual who's good at what they do perform. I'll watch the best in the world at anything, do anything. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it be golf, whether it be managing people. They just want to learn. And whatever they don't know, if they see someone else who has that ability, they want to know how that person was able to, you know, develop that that type of skill. So it, you, I think the biggest thing is they're they're curious. And they just want to learn more and have more tools to their, we'll say their toolbox. Oh, absolutely. So high performers are curious and they love seeing other people perform. And, um, and for, for me, I, I listened to another, uh, high performance coach. Uh, his name is Brendan Burchard. And one of the major calls he said high performers have are asking clarifying questions, you know. And, and whatever that looks like in, in whatever setting, you know, actually clarifying questions. And I think this goes back to what you what you always say, like people who are passionate and intense about their work. This is not a bad thing. This is a quality of a high performer. 
Yeah, and, and recognizing that, you know, that that is normal, that people who excel are intense and they're passionate. And I think asking clarifying questions is cool, but I still think, for me, it's the power of observation. Like, my eyes are attracted to exceptional things. So my eyes will lead me to what the next thing I want to see or learn about. And so I have to see it first before I will really figure out that's something that I really want to learn. So to me, it's all, to me, it starts with observation. Observation. Yep. Uh, that's awesome. So any, any other qualities of a high performer that people can actually work on to become a high performer that you would say they, they can just start working on today? Learn the value of research. Learn to, to love research. There's a lot of things that have already been done where you don't have to reinvent the wheel. So learn the value of, we'll call it compressing your learning curve by really building upon those things that have already been developed so that you can save your your real thoughts and your real mentals for discovery of things on your own. But you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Absolutely. Man, Mr. Stacy, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Any Anywhere that the people can like reach out to you, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter? LinkedIn is where you're going to find me because I believe that's where real professionals hang out. I mean, all the other social media platforms are cool. But if you want to know where the, the professionals, the movers and the shakers are hanging out for me in, in terms of business, it's going to be on LinkedIn. So they can find me there under uh, my complete name, which is Stacy Lamar King. That's where they'll find me. Absolutely. Mr. Stacy, I really appreciate you coming on our podcast. And this is the, for the Masses podcast, High Performance Featuring Mr. Stacy King. Well, Mr. Stacy King provided so much, so much value especially when it came to being young, black, and gifted, and what that actually meant, and how he used that to go an uncommon route that led him to being amongst uncommon people in the field of high performers. He not only told us about how he got to that field, but he also told us qualities of high performers and what that looks like. I'm super grateful that we were able to have him on the podcast. Again, please follow him on LinkedIn at Mr. Stacey Lamar King. Thank you for listening for the Masters Podcast. This podcast is dedicated to my mother, Alfredo Bullock. She ran her race with elegance and pride. I love you forever and always.